0: I uh, invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 9. And uh, let me just start by saying I am uh, so, I'm so grateful for your faithfulness. You know, having done this for many years, I know that uh, once we get past Thanksgiving and it starts to get cold around here uh, in Memphis, that uh, getting out of your warm bed to get here uh, at 6.30 to study God's Word verse by verse, um, little, some obstacles to that. So the fact that you all are here, very encouraging to me personally uh, that you'd be here. I uh, just had someone come up, and uh, I think they were trying to be gracious. They said, "Hey, I was looking to see what uh, what bowl game Florida was in, and I realized that they went five and seven. They're not even in a bowl game." Like, thank you. That's really depressing. Really appreciate that encouragement. Um, I would say this though that uh, um, the fact that uh, as a Florida fan, I know there's a lot of controversy about the college football playoff. Uh, as a Florida Gator fan who's had an awful season, the fact that Georgia went 12-1 and and Florida State went 13-0 and and neither one of them is in the college football playoffs is about the biggest win the Gators have had this year. So I'm grateful for that. I was talking to uh, a friend of mine who's a huge Tennessee fan, huge Tennessee fan. We were talking about the controversy, the playoffs, the college football playoffs and the SEC getting in. And... Um, um, you know, he was saying that he has friends of his who say to him, even though he's a huge Tennessee fan, he's like, well, I mean, you're going for, for Alabama, right? You're in the college playoffs. You wanna the, see them win the national championship. You're going for them because they're in the SEC, right? Like, that's why you cheer for, for Alabama. And he's like, no, no, no. He said, telling me I gotta cheer for Alabama because they're in the SEC is telling me like I gotta cheer for the devil because he's in the Bible. <laughs> he said, it's not gonna happen. <laughs> Some of you UT fans can use that with my, you know, do you have my permission? Beyond college football playoffs and all the craziness we have going on uh, with, a, with an election, and some of you watched that last night, the, the debate. Um, some of you have seen the, the craziness that's, that's gone on with the presidents of MIT and uh, Penn and Harvard and their testimony before Congress and unbelievable statements that we can't imagine happening in our country with what's going on in, in uh, Israel and Gaza and the confusion that we feel about what justice ought to be uh, for um, the, the murderous reign of, of Hamas, and yet we also see innocence, all of that turmoil. All, isn't it great that we get to come back to God's word again and again and again as an anchor amidst all this craziness? And we're coming here to John chapter 9 this morning, which is... Uh, the sixth of seven signs that John chose to put in his, in his gospel. At the very end of John, uh, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John gives us the reason for his gospel. He says, I've, uh, I've given you these signs. I've shown you a picture of Jesus. It's not all that Jesus did, but I've shown you the things I've shown you in order that you might believe that he is the Christ And that by believing, you might have life in his name. And so here again, we have John giving us this moment uh, in Jesus' ministry, which is, as some would say, this particular chapter, the most complete and organized presentation of the gospel through Jesus' uh, miraculous works. Let's read uh, together. I'll read, you follow along. We'll read all 41 verses uh, because it is a... Very fascinating story. As Jesus passed, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. He anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but it's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? And he said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes and washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they again went to the blind man, well, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that, that he had been blind and had received a sight. Until they, called his parents, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already said, Agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for a second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, I now see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke, has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes? The man answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him said, heard him say these things. And they said to Jesus, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you are blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. There's three things I want us to see here in this amazing picture of Jesus. And remember, it's what's on the front of your notebook, knowing Christ. That's why we're here. We want to understand him better. We want to to know this Jesus who has opened the eyes of the blind. Many of you in here, maybe all of you in here, would say, Yes, I remember the time or the season in which God opened my eyes, gave me spiritual sight. Let's look again very carefully at this Jesus. The first thing I want us to see is the compassion of Christ, the compassion of Christ. It's very, very interesting here that, uh, that, that the Lord Jesus takes this moment of physical healing and teaches us a picture about who God is. It starts with this blind beggar, this blind beggar, helpless in almost every way. He's certainly physically blind, but since he's been blind since birth and he's in a, in a culture, and a society where he had no way to make money, he's therefore also uh, socially uh, helpless and he's economically helpless. I mean, his existence depends on him just sitting there begging and receiving money. That's who he was. He was an outcast. That he was still alive was amazing. That he had food. That he had a a way to get around. Completely helpless. And yet, I love the opening phrase of John 9. Jesus saw him. There's a whole lot of sight words in John 9. And it begins with Jesus seeing the man. Jesus saw him. And then comes this disciple's question. And this is, a, this is a whole nother sermon. It's very interesting. They say, Jesus, uh, who sinned, this man or his parents? Because in that culture, and we'll get to ours in a second, their, their thought was, listen, if something bad's happened to you, you have some disability, well, certainly the reason you have some disability or something hasn't gone right for you is because you clearly have ticked God off. You've done something wrong. You've sinned. And so they want to they know, Lord, which one is it? Is it? And you say, well, how could he sin if he was born blind? How could he sin in the womb? Actually, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders at that time in their theology had some thought that it was possible for you to sin in the womb. And so they're wanting to know, Jesus, what's your, what's your theology around this suffering, around this brokenness? And that's not too far off from us. I mean, we probably wouldn't be as bold to say that, but isn't it interesting that we usually think when we see someone who is uh, uh, struggling, when you see a person who's begg- a beggar, isn't it often our instinct to think that, they, did, that they, didn't, they didn't work hard enough? They didn't figure out how to do this life well enough. They, they, there's something about them that's broken that's made them be in that position. That's our tendency. Our tendency also is often to think is when bad things happen to us, well, maybe I should have done this. Maybe God is upset because of this, and He's, he's these are the I mean being punished for this. On the flip side, sometimes we wrongly think, gosh, you know, if I just do this, this, and this, it's all going to go okay with me. Now, it's clear in Scripture there is a connection between sin in the world and brokenness and pain. That's clear. But here, Jesus, in many other places in Scripture, makes it clear you can't take that and go one-to-one on an individual life. You can't go and say, okay, well, that, that thing's happened to that person because God's a little more disappointed with them than they are with me. We've got to be careful with that because we can get self-righteous really fast, like the Pharisees, like maybe even the disciples. When we look at people who are struggling with brokenness, struggling with uh, things in their lives, suffering in their lives, and we tend to, th- and when we think, well, they must have not done something right, what we're really saying is, I'm, I, but I am doing something right. That can either lead to great arrogance or it can lead to great despair when you start going through suffering. Jesus said, neither. And then he says something interesting about suffering. He said, this is before us that the works of God might be revealed. Now, there's a, there's, a, there's a mystery about, there's a mysteriousness about suffering in the world. Suffering happens because of brokenness. Why does it happen in your life? Why, does, why is that happening to you? We don't always know. There's nothing in, in the book of Job that suggests that Job even know, knew in this lifetime Why what happened to him happened to him? But in that, God is always working. That's what Jesus is saying. In all of suffering, I am working. In all the things that don't make sense to us, I am working. I'm doing the works, so let's look at that. God is at work. He's the answer to all the suffering, all the mysteriousness of the suffering, all the confusion, all the questions. God is at work. Here he is, the blind beggar. And then Jesus goes on and he says, I'm the light of the world. This goes back to what Barton taught last week. Jesus says, I'm here, I'm the light of the world, and I'm about to go to work. By saying he's the light of the world, he's saying he's God. By saying, hey, we gotta do the works of God, watch this, he's saying, I'm God. And John wants his readers to know that. Jesus is making it clear who he is when he says, I am the light of the world. And then why the mud? <laughs> why, you know, I remember reading this long, long time ago when I was probably in high school and thinking that's the weirdest thing ever. Why, why does Jesus spit on the ground, make mud, put it on? Jesus could have just said, go ahead and see. And it could have happened. Why the mud? Well, there's lots of speculation around that. I, I like what... John Piper and some others say that oftentimes you're seeing Jesus using the ordinary things of earth in order to bring about the extraordinary work of God. And in doing so, he's making a statement that there's not this dichotomy between earth and your bodies and everything physical is evil and everything spiritual is is holy He's making the point, No, I created the world. I created the ground. I created mud. It's all sacred, because I am creator. I created your bodies. Your bodies aren't evil. The sin is evil. But I created this world, and I'm going to use this world to pull to, to work my works. He's going to take the earthly things, the ordinary things, to do the extraordinary of God. And then what is this with the the, the pool of Siloam? And Notice that in in our Gospels that John wanted us to know that it meant sent, that Siloam meant sent. And again, John is saying, "I I want you to see that what Jesus did is made another reference to who he was, who Jesus was. He says, I'm the light of the world. He says, I'm going to do the works of God. And then he says, the the pool that Jesus sent him to was called Siloam. It means sent. And throughout scripture, you see Jesus as the sent one, the sent one from God. Blind beggar, the light of the world. And of course, seeing is believing. Now this guy who's been born blind is going around and his neighbors are like, Okay, wait a second. We've seen this guy our whole lives sitting here, and now he's, he's walking around. He's not feeling his way around. He's not sitting there. He can see, and they've, they've never seen anything like this before. So they're, what's going on? And of course, some are like, well, I, I think that's the guy who's the beggar. And some are like, no, no, it's, it just looks like him. And of course, it's hilarious, the humor of this. Because the man's like, no, I'm the guy. <laughs> I'm the beggar. Isn't it beautiful when you see in Scripture the, uh, not just the spiritual things, but just the, the normal humanity, the, the normal humor? Because it reminds you this really is the true God. This is history. This isn't, this isn't just somebody writing down religious thoughts. This is something that happened. And we can imagine that. This guy going around like, no, it's me. It really is me. I'm really the guy. The blind beggar. And this blind beggar has come in contact with Jesus who saw him because the blind beggar could never see Jesus. Notice that. The blind beggar doesn't call out to Jesus. And you see, you're beginning to make the connection, right? John is wanting us to make the connection that there's something more than physical sight at play here. There's something beyond physical sight that is play here, and John is wanting us to to see clearly that this is all Jesus doing. The man had nothing to do with it. The man had absolutely nothing to do with it. It's all Jesus. Well, moving on. Next we see the controversy uh, around Christ. And this controversy Jesus caused on purpose. (laughs) Again, Jesus could have said, you're healed, you can see. But Jesus knew, well, one, that by healing this man, you could only, the Sabbath law says, you can, you can work works of mercy if the person's going to die. But the, the blind guy wasn't going to die. So already by healing him, here he already broke in the Sabbath. Then there's this rule about kneading bread. <laughs> this rule about like, that the Sabbath rule that to, to knead bread, to knead dough, you know, to, and to make mud would break the Sabbath. So Jesus knew, I'm about to cause a controversy. I'm, I'm, I'm going to cause a problem for some people right now. <laughs> and so doing that. And then not only that, by sending this guy to the Pool of Siloam and saying, hey, I want you to go walk this distance and go. So Jesus is breaking at least three Sabbath laws. And he knows exactly what he's doing here. And it's all Jesus doing. Just like the healing is all Jesus doing, this controversy, what we see in verses 13 through 34, it's all Jesus doing. And the first thing we see in the first conversation, three conversations, Pharisees with the man, Pharisees with his parents, and the Pharisees again with his man. First thing we see is that Jesus does not accept our human morality, our own, our own rules. The Pharisees had decided what sins were bad and what sins were not so bad. They had the rules that they go, we can follow these. And there's some other things that they just didn't, uh, they weren't as concerned about. And then this led to them being more concerned with the Sabbath laws than giving sight to the blind. So their their legalism, their moralism led them to pull out certain things and say, these are bad sins. These other ones, they're they're sin, but it's it's not as bad as these. And then that led them to this, this crazy misunderstanding of what mercy meant. And of course, we look at that and go, man, they are so dumb. I've done that before, haven't you? Pharisees, God. These guys are so dumb, so mean. How could they miss this? And then I'm reminded by the Holy Spirit, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. Every culture in every place in the world, Christians have done the same thing. There's certain sins in East Memphis culture that we consider worse. And certain sins, as Tim Keller's book puts it, that are kind of acceptable sins. So we look at certain sexual sins, maybe the sin of practicing homosexuality, and we go, man, that, that is a terrible, terrible sin. But gossip, I mean, yeah, it's a sin, but I mean, people gossip. And yet when you look in Romans, those two sins are in the exact same list. In fact, in that list also includes disobedient to parents. What God's word is telling us is that all sin is serious. But it's our tendency to just go, well the ones that we're well the morality that we want to create, that's let's just live with that. And Jesus is saying, I, listen, I, I'm not accepting your morality. I'm not accepting the Pharisees' morality, I'm not accepting your morality. I'm after your hearts. I'm after this beyond your outside actions. And that's why we see in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus say, I know that you understand God's word says, do not kill. And then Jesus says, but if you've already hated your brother in your heart, you've already committed murder. Jesus is saying your morality is not good enough. And it's a good word to us. Jesus comes to us and say, hey, our our own, the rules we're making. He's like, no, no. I want your hearts. I want to go after all of you. Not just your outward actions. Not just your outside behavior, but what's going on in our hearts. Jesus does not accept our morality. Jesus cannot be contained by our science. It goes on to these parents. And they didn't believe these Pharisees are like, okay, they're talking to the guy and they're like, this can't be right. None of, stuff like this never happens. They go to the parents and they're like, this is your son and he was born blind because we're not believing it because that can't physically happen. So even after they've been with the man and they're talking to him, they still can't believe. They can't get their heads around it because it doesn't fit their science. It doesn't fit their intelligence. This this doesn't fit in my worldview. This doesn't work for me. And isn't it interesting, even today, in fact, in every culture, in every, every uh, a decade, every century, there's always this thing of, well, we've somehow got to make Jesus and the Bible fit into our human science, which is crazy because he's like, he's God. So, of course, he would be beyond that. I love what Alistair Begg says, you know, you you, you find even, even liberal scholars trying to explain miracles away, right? And it's like, okay, yeah, Jesus didn't walk on the water. That's not, it looked like Jesus walked in the water. See, actually, the boat was like in about four to five inches of water. That's where the boat was. And so Jesus was was walking on the ground, but... It looked like he was walking on the water. And as Alistair Begg says, he says, you know, it's crazy. In trying to explain away the miracles, we actually create something that's more of a miracle. Because how is this heavy boat full of fish floating in four inches of water? Now you've got to explain that. And over and over again, you see that. You see explaining away the miracles just creates a whole, you're like, okay, wow. Well, that's a new miracle you've just created. And you see, it's God. He can do whatever he wants. God is the one who actually created our world. He created our science. It's interesting. I know some of you have heard this, know this. I remember having a guy who was a a brilliant, brilliant guy, Stanford, had a PhD from Stanford uh, in biology, microbiology. And he said, you know, actually, Todd, in the world of science he said biologists were kind of on this level you know and then you go up to, to uh, the next level and the next you you get up to the guys who who are really he said the farther up you get the, the more brilliant you get in science the fewer atheists you actually find cuz it just doesn't work random selection randomness doesn't work you can't really study the intricacies of the world if you start with the assumption that everything's random, you can't, he says you can't even run experiments. You have to actually believe that there is some kind of form and structure in order to run the experiment. Again, that makes sense, right? Jesus here says, listen, I'm not contained. I'm not contained by your science, by your intelligence. And then thirdly, Jesus won't submit to our religion. The Pharisees had a huge problem. Actually, we talked about this before. They clearly knew that Jesus was from God. they That was their struggle. They, they knew this guy is supernatural. They knew that. What they didn't want, they didn't want him as their Messiah. They could see clearly that this guy is supernatural. He, it, appears he's from God or but they did not want him being their God and they certainly didn't want him being the Messiah the one that they had the anointed one that they had waited for and so the Pharisees response in this hilarious conversation with this man where the man says you're asking a lot of questions do you want to be his disciple and so do they start with they start with their theology and their theology said, well, we're, you're, you're maybe one of his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. Let us tell you, here's our theology. And the man says, well, that's amazing. Because clearly this man's from God. And again, they were so stumped that when their theology didn't work, they just had to cancel this guy. Well, you're a sinner. And you can't talk. You, you don't know what you're talking about. And literally, that's. I mean, it's kind of a silly argument, but it's like it's like they're five, right? You try to explain something to the five-year-old; they have their reasoning, the reasoning doesn't work, <laughs> and so their responses to their friend: "Well, you're just stupid, and I don't like you. <laughs> I don't have an answer, but I'm not listening to you anymore." And that's what happens here because Jesus doesn't fit into our religion. And brothers, that's our problem. I would tell you, Jesus doesn't fit nicely into our East Memphis Christianity. He hasn't fit nicely into any culture's Christianity. I love how Tim Keller puts it. If God is truly God, then he would have to be able to transcend all cultures. He'd have to be able to connect with every type of culture in the world. And it is one of the fascinating things about Christianity. Unlike all other religions that actually are connected to a specific type of culture, Christianity has spanned for the centuries all different cultures. Well, that would make sense. If it's true and God is God, then he, could, he connects with all cultures. If he really is the creator, he connects with all cultures. But, Tim Keller says, and he also offends all cultures because he can't be contained in one. He can't be contained in one. Jesus does not fit nicely into East Memphis Christianity. There's certain things that that we've adopted because of the culture we grew up in and being Southern gentlemen and things like that and, and our own sin being woven into the fabric of what's going on here. That, that we find acceptable and, and Jesus doesn't. It doesn't actually fit with Scripture. It doesn't actually fit with Jesus. No, Jesus doesn't fit nicely into uh, East Memphis culture. What needs to happen is that we need to fit into Jesus. Christianity doesn't define Jesus. Jesus defines Christianity. And that's a a journey for us, brothers. That's a journey we need to constantly be taking. Taking that journey of always looking at at our Bibles and always being reformed. The Reformation, we call a lot of us who are in this room, maybe all of us in this room would say that that, that, uh, that, that we are of the reformed faith well, at the core of it, reformed means this, that we're continually getting out of form <laughs> and that we come back to God's word every day to shape us back into biblical form. We're being reformed into what scripture has to say. Because give us a few hours and, and you know, like, a, like, a, like I've said before, like a car that drives down Poplar two, you know, two or three times, the alignment that you got fixed, it's gone, right? So you're great. You walked out, of the, you walked out got in your car after the tires were rotated and balanced and alignment, and you're just amazed as you're driving along that you can actually let go of your steering wheel and the car just stays straight. One trip down Poplar, gone. <laughs> now you get in, it's pulling this way. And that's us, Brothers. We're cars out of alignment, you let us go, we're gonna go one way or the other. And we have to have the grip of Jesus on us to keep us aligned, to keep us in the right place. And this this leads lastly to the clarity in Christ. Uh, Jesus is the dividing line for humanity. Jesus is the dividing line for all of humanity. There's this passage in Luke. In fact, turn back to it. I get the opportunity on uh, Christmas Eve at the 11 p.m. service uh, to to preach on this passage. I'm only going to give you a few of the verses. Verses 33, Luke chapter 2, verse 33 through 35. This is when Jesus is presented at the temple as a baby. And there's Simeon. There Simeon is, he's been waiting, he's been waiting because Jesus promised Simeon, I'm going to let you, I'm not going to let you see the Messiah before you die. And now Simeon gets to see him. In verse 33, it says, and Jesus' father and mother marveled at what was said about Jesus. And Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary his mother, behold, this child is appointed For the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus is the dividing line. He's going to make things clear in people's hearts where we really stand. And so, this controversy is on purpose because Jesus wants to make things clear. And he starts by making things clear to this man. Jesus' ultimate intent all along was not just to heal his physical blindness, but to heal his spiritual blindness. He wanted to heal this man's spiritual blindness. He wanted not to just give him sight to his eyes, but he wanted to give him sight to his heart and his mind. That's what Jesus' intent was. And brothers, you know this. Before we knew Christ, we were all blind beggars. We were all blind beggars, unable to see Jesus. We didn't we didn't even many of us didn't even realize we were blind. That's how blind we were. <laughs> we thought we could see. And we were helpless to do anything about our condition. We were morally corrupt. And maybe we tried, maybe some of you tried to be good men. I'm going to try to be a good, and you, you, like me, we couldn't even live up to our own rules, our own set of morality. We couldn't even succeed at that every day. We were that morally corrupt, that blinded. And in our blindness, as blind beggars, Jesus came and gave sight to us. He saw you. Jesus saw you. he says, I'm going to give you sight. I'm going to open the eyes of your heart. And you're going to be able to see me. And you can can look back like I can and recognize as we see the difference. Wow, that was all Jesus doing. This had nothing to do with me being smarter or figuring out theology or figuring out Oh, yeah, I compared religions and it all made sense to me because I'm so smart, I can figure out where religion is right. You and I both know we are blind beggars. And Jesus opened our eyes. It was all his doing. He was the one. We can only rely on him. It wasn't about us. And then there's these sobering verses. As Jesus talks about being blinded, by the clarity that he brings. you are sobering verses because it makes clear what we find in other places of Scripture. It's very dangerous to hear the gospel and walk away. It's very dangerous to sit in a church week after week, year after year, and not surrender to Christ. It's very dangerous to sit at Amen Bible Study Week after week, year after year, and not surrender to Christ. Because when we're given the gospel and, and, and a rejection of that just hardens our hearts, it brings calluses on us. And so the gospel either of Christ either draws us to him or it, it pushes us away. And doing youth ministry for all these years, 27 years of youth ministry always trying to present the gospel to students. I knew these student, a lot of these students well. Hung out with them at school, coached them in soccer, all of that. It was always in the back of my mind how scary it was that some of these young men and women refused to receive the word that was given to them because I knew they were heaping damnation upon themselves by walking away a clarity that Jesus brings in this there's a call to us to respond to all of that and so there's both beauty and offense in the gospel of Christ the beauty is that he opens our eyes the the offense is that in order to open your eyes you've got to actually believe that you're a blind beggar you actually have to come to the realization that you actually can only come to as Christ provides. It's all His doing. Come to the realization I'm a blind beggar. And unless Jesus sees me and opens my eyes, I've got nothing. That this salvation is all of Jesus and nothing of me. I want to close. I've mentioned this before, some of you have seen it. I watch it about every other month. I'm going to close with uh, this video clip, um, about three minutes long. Um, my, my preacher crush, Alistair Begg. Some of you have seen this. Some of you have heard about it. It's a great description that it's Jesus that opens our eyes, that it's all Jesus, that it's everything is about him. He's the one. It's all his doing. Let's watch this and then we'll uh,
1: close in prayer without the preaching of the cross—without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day—we will very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So that to go to the old uh, Fort Lauderdale question, if you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I. Because I believed. Because I have faith. Because I am this. Because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer's in the third person. Because he. Because he. Think about the thief on the cross. And what an immense—I can't, I, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were, you were, you were, you were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend, you'd never been in a Bible study, you never got baptized, you, ne- you didn't know a thing about church membership, and, and, yet, and yet you made it! You made it! How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, <laughs> what do you mean you don't know? Well, like, cause I don't know. Well, you know, we, uh, uh, did you, the, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor, Ranger. <laughs> so we're just a few questions for you, first of all. Are you—are 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 you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith?" The guy said, I've never heard of it in my life. And, and what about—let's uh, just go to the doctrine of Scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, on, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. Now—now, now, that's the— That is the only answer. That is the only answer. And if I don't preach the gospel to myself all day and every day, then I will find myself beginning to trust myself, trust my experience, which is part of my fallenness as a man. If I take my eyes off the cross, I can then give only lip service to its efficacy, while at the same time living as if my salvation depends upon me. And as soon as you go there, it will lead you either to abject despair or a horrible kind of arrogance. And it is only the cross of Christ that deals both with the dreadful depths of despair and the pretentious arrogance of the pride of man that says, you know, I can figure this out, and I'm doing wonderfully well. No, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the justice is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Let's pray, brothers.
0: Heavenly Father, for those of us in this room who've had our eyes opened, it was only because the man on the middle cross did it. Father, thank you for the the beauty and the truth of your word. Lord, help these things that are here in John 9 to sink deeply into our hearts. See, only you can do that. Lord, we can't do that. We're not spiritually wise enough to have these these truths from your scripture sink deeply into us and be applied at the very spot that we need them. So Father, please do that. Apply your word at the very spot that we need it. For we we are in ourselves blind beggars. And it is you who's opened up our eyes. Father, we were once blind, but now by grace we see. And we say thank you. We pray this prayer in the matchless name of our Savior, the one who has done it all, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.